There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode 27 of the Shine On Podcast, I'm Evan Shine. Producer Dave, how are you, my friend? I am great. I guess as great as I can be, given that we're heading into the dreary season, and we're still not allowed to go inside most places, and just a shell of a man, Evan. But when I'm on this podcast, (laughs) I am on. Shine On means Dave is on, and I'm excited to be here today. That's because nobody's better than you, producer Dave. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, we have an absolutely great show today and a fantastic guest. On today's episode, I sit down with UCLA professor of sociology and statistics, Jenny Brand. The relationship between divorce and education and the impact of divorce on a child's educational success is an area that's not often talked about or explored. That changes right now. On this episode, I talk with Professor Brand about the impact of family disruption on children's educational success. Wait until you hear what Professor Brand has to say on this topic. It will, without question, make you think about the relationship between divorce, education, and various sociological factors in an entirely new and different way. While parental divorce is generally associated with unfavorable outcomes for children, it does not follow that every divorce is equally bad for the children it affected. This is just one of the many incredible findings in Professor Brand's research article titled, Parental Divorce is Not Uniformly Disruptive to Children's Educational Attainment. I am excited to have Professor Jenny Brand on today's show, my interview with her is coming up on the other side of this week's docket. This is an interview that you do not want to miss. Well, we have a timely edition of the docket ready for you, counselor. Should we fire it up? Dave, let's do it. All right. And now let's see what's on the docket. So we have a few news items from the docket today. The first one involving the holidays. <coughs> Item one. From the New York Times comes the story, holidays are tough after a divorce. Here's how I learned to prepare. So it's written by, obviously, a divorced woman named Hannah Inger, and she kind of shares her journey, her challenges, and talks about, frankly, how sad it was for her that she had to share her kids, or in other words, that she didn't get her kids for certain holidays. She talks about her coping devices preparing for each one ahead of time, making sure she maximizes the time with her kids when she does have them, and then other things like planning activities for herself when she doesn't have the kids. So your thoughts on this one, Evan? Well, Dave, I got to tell you, I'm absolutely fired up for this docket. And look, we're in the middle of holiday season. Thanksgiving is now in the rearview mirror. And the holidays are a time for celebration, fun, and tradition. At least it should be. But for so many people... That's not the case. The holidays, they're unfortunately at times more about heartache and headache and hassle than the fun. Why are the holidays so stressful for divorcing parents, for parents who are separating, for parents who are newly divorced and are trying to co-parent? How can this stress be avoided? How can you as a divorcing parent 
or a parent who is recently divorced or a parent who is trying to co-parent and make the best of the holidays for your children. Turn holiday co-parenting headache into holiday co-parenting happiness. Look, I was scheduled for seven days of trial, middle of November, and the week after Thanksgiving. And what was the hangup for weeks in my case? It was not the substantial amount of money. It was not the properties. It was not the real estate. It was not the actual parenting schedule. It was not even how the parents would make decisions for their children. The holdup was Halloween. Mm. The holdup was Christmas break, Christmas Eve, drop-off times. The holdup was what do you do if Easter conflicts with spring break? The holdup was what do you do if the children are in private school and the breaks are two weeks versus if the children are in public school and the breaks are one week? Look, I've negotiated who bakes gingerbread cookies with the children (laughs) and who sits on Santa's lap at the mall. And look, I get it. Mm. I truly get it. And look, my case ultimately settled, but it settled with the assistance of a third party. In this case, it was a parenting coordinator, and a trial was avoided. And it's easy to say, let it go. It's easy to say the parties, just figure it out. And look, I'm not a therapist, and it makes sense at times when you're down to issues like this. I find in my practice, it's incredibly helpful to bring in third parties. We've talked with divorce coaches, Wendy Sterling, Andrea Hips, on how to navigate these issues. But this is an incredibly tough time. And for so many parents, it is incredibly important. And Dave, I know you've been open. You've talked about your relationship and your divorce. And Mm -hmm. you've mentioned other people, friends that have been divorced as well. The holidays are tough. It's a really tough time for so many people. For sure. And I've had those moments where I've been alone or mostly alone on certain holidays. It but in all you can do is kind of some of the things that this woman recommends in the article is just kind of make the best of it and know that your your children are wanted and hopefully they're loved even if you're not with them that's the way you ultimately have to come around to i think it's what i've come around to but it doesn't necessarily make it any easier and no one said divorce is going to be a better rose so you got to find ways to get through it and the other thing i would say is when you tell me but but that first holiday season once you're divorced that has to be just an incredibly tough time, but I would think as the children get used to a schedule, as the parents get used to this new co-parenting relationship, it does get easier over time. For sure. And right off the bat, my ex-wife told me that Thanksgiving was just of paramount importance to her, and she wanted to take her kids to Philadelphia to see her folks. And I wasn't thrilled about it, but I thought about it. I'll, I'll go to Thanksgiving with my folks There'll be football and beer there too. So, and just try to make the best of it. And so, and, and sometimes letting go kind of feels good. In other words, if, if you, you have certain things you're fighting about in a divorce, to be able to just give it up and say, you know what, we're going to live. The kids are going to live. There'll be holiday season next year, the whole deal. And if, if family and football makes a lot of things. Like that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We move on. Item two. From the Today Show comes an article Couples who meet on dating apps are more likely to divorce in early marriage, a study coming to us from the UK finds. And the study found that 12% of couples who meet online get divorced within the first three years of marriage compared to only 2% of couples who meet through friends or family. And after seven years, those statistics increase to 17% and 10% respectively. It's 
good news for your business plan, Evan, as a divorce lawyer, but it but it brings up some interesting aspects of how people meet and all that. So what did you think about this one? If I got to tell you, I read this article and then I read it again. And then I read it for a third time. <laughs> I thought I was dreaming. This is the type of article that makes your head spin. The statistics that makes you think, what does this even mean? And this is one of those stats to me about divorce rates for couples who meet online. What do you expect? Welcome to dating in 2021 and beyond. This is how you find love. Common sense would tell you if more people are meeting online, searching for love online, looking to date online, guess what? The divorce rates are might be higher based on how people are meeting. So this statistic and this article absolutely made my head spin. And look, we just had Dr. Helen Fisher on episode number 26. She's the chief science advisor to Match.com. And wow, was she brilliant. Talk about a fun interview. I have had so many people over the past two weeks reach out to me and say, when is Dr. Fisher on for part two? So producer Dave, we need to get on that. Let's do that. <laughs> but Dr. Fisher had some incredibly important stuff to say. And one of those takes from her was about couples meeting online, couples looking for a deeper connection. Dr. Fisher wouldn't agree with the stats in this article. She would not necessarily agree. And she said that on the podcast about the divorce rates as it relates to couples meeting online. Why? Because, and she uses the term slow love. People are looking for a deeper connection. People are talking about how to take dating even more seriously online and looking for that connection and looking for traits and looking for characteristics and compatibility with someone who they're looking to meet in a more careful, more diligent way than ever before. Yeah. And I, I think I found the results surprising too, considering that online dating should be in a perfect world just another way to meet someone. It's not as if the relationship exists online. You just meet the person online, then eventually you get together and, and then hopefully it wouldn't be that much difference. But maybe there are just there's a thread in here that people that are, are willing to start out online have maybe a more casual attitude towards the whole thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm with Dr. Fisher. I, I, I hope people are exploring more meaningful ways to get to know each other. Item three. Finally on the docket today, Evan, we have a story about the doggies. From the New Yorker comes an article called A Voice for the Yorkies and Doodles When Mom and Dad Split Up and deals with the issue of who gets the dog in the divorce settlement. It chronicles the thoughts and experiences of a, a matrimonial judge, Judge Cooper. He thinks part of his legacy may be awakening New York to the inner life of animals. <laughs> he says, as long as it doesn't open a Pandora's box of drawn-out hearings, proceedings, and testimonies about cockapoodles, which you can tell us, Evan, if it does or not sometimes. Dave, I'll tell you what. I'm about to make my dog growing up, Kirby, a standard poodle, proud by putting this into the diet segment, ta talking <laughs> about pets and, and the custody analysis and all that stuff. So, look, a shout-out to all the pet lovers out there and the recognition that how the courts view pets in New York in a divorce matter is now and finally a best interest analysis. And what it shows is, look, this issue should be taken incredibly seriously, and it's an important one with proper consideration. First, hats off to New York County Manhattan judge, Judge Cooper, who is an absolutely terrific matrimonial judge. He has made historic and landmark decisions over the years 
a few months ago in September of this year, Judge Cooper was the presiding judge on a case of mine where he decided the novel, historic, and groundbreaking decision suspending a parent's in-person parenting time until he availed himself of the COVID-19 vaccination or required him to submit to a rapid and PCR test prior to in-person access. And that's a decision that's the first of the kind in the country that I'm aware of. And he takes a similar approach in this case, as he's done in so many other cases. New York State has a new pet custody law, thanks to the new governor of the state of New York, which was just signed in 2021. The law allows judges to consider the best interest of the animal in divorce cases that involve a pet. Previously, New York treated animals as property to be distributed equally, similar to how cars and other property were divided. That now changes. And Judge Cooper, who the article mentions, is a dog lover himself. Mm. He was ahead of the curve. He was ahead of the change in New York state law. The case involved a miniature dachshund named Joey Mm. that served as a blueprint for this new law, which was enacted by the governor. He was ahead of the curve. And how about a shout out to my law partner, Jacqueline Newman, an author of the book, The New Rules of Divorce. She's quoted in this article Mm. talking about this law and the change. And producer Dave, this is long overdue and the impact will be tremendous. Uh, I don't know if that's your dog or mine, Evan, but uh, who let the dogs out? Our featured guest this week is Jenny Brandt. She's a professor of sociology and statistics at UCLA. She's director of the California Center for Population Research and co-director of the Center for Social Statistics. She holds many other prominent positions for sociological organizations nationwide. Professor Brandt has served on over three dozen university committees over the past few years alone. She's the author of several publications and many incredibly important research articles and studies. One of the areas of focus for Professor Brand is on the consequences of disruptive life events, divorce and job displacement being two of them. One of Professor Brand's recent research articles looks at parental divorce and the impact on children's educational attainment. We're going to talk about this study and research on today's episode. Jenny, thank you for joining us. I appreciate the time. How are you? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Jenny, before we jump into your study and talk about one of those disruptive life events, which you research and you specialize and focus on divorce, tell us what a disruptive life event is and how you define it. Yeah, so we think of disruptive life events as those that kind of break up the continuity of some life conditions. So things like some kind of family shock, a divorce or breakup of a union, job changes like a job loss. And sometimes it can be something like a health shock, which we've seen a lot in the last few years and incarceration can be some kind of disruption. So some kind of event that triggers changes in life status and life conditions and ultimately can impact a range of different types of outcomes for individuals and families. Jenny, you mentioned job loss and also health scares in the pandemic and COVID-19, and we're going to talk about that. But let's talk about and start with your study. Parental divorce is not uniformly disruptive to children's educational attainment. This was a study and research article published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. 
And we're going to get into your key findings. But before we do, set the stage for us in terms of what you set out to research and really what was the focus of your work? Yeah, so a lot of the focus of my work is on variation in the impact of these types of events. So how, how some people can respond really differently to disruptive events. Some people can have long-term negative consequences of some events, while others, maybe it has minimal impact or, or in some cases can be a positive change. So that's, that's the basis of a lot of the work that I do is kind of trying to understand how the effects vary across the population. So that's what we set out to do with this particular study. We were looking at parental divorce as our disruptive event and then trying to understand how that event varied across families. And in this case, looking at variation across the likelihood of experiencing that event. This study and research, and I want to get into the findings now, absolutely fascinated me. There were parts of it that surprised me. I'm curious if, if parts of your research and what you found also surprised you And one of those findings is that you found that children of stable marriages who go through divorce are affected more negatively in terms of pursuing education than those that come from more unstable backgrounds. That surprised me. I wonder, did it surprise you? And tell us more about this key finding. Yeah, I mean, I, it surprised us to some extent in the sense that finding very little impact for the, the children of parents who had a high likelihood of experiencing a divorce. We would expect to see more impact there, but really we're not finding much of anything in terms of the impact for those families who are experiencing a lot of different types of disruptions. And then a divorce occurs and it's not, it's one of many negative consequences and negative life events. And so it's not kind of disrupting. It's, it's not as disruptive really to their, their future outcomes. So, I mean, in some ways that, that is surprising. And yet also though speaks to this literature that suggests the, the shock of an event that to an otherwise more stable set of life conditions can be more a more disruptive type of trigger to, to negative events to follow. That's really fascinating and interesting. And you mentioned in your work, other studies have been done and other scholars have looked into this area, but your research and your focus and, and your angle and approach to it is different. Tell us about the difference between the way you structured your research and the methodology compared to other research and studies that have been done on this topic before. Yeah, so I, I, for a lot of my career, I've spent a lot of time looking at variation according to this likelihood of experiencing some event. So I do that with the work on job displacement and also work on, on college and education and other facets. And the, the aim here is to kind of model who's more, and less, more or less likely to experience a particular event. So we, we have all these factors that we put into the model to predict who is, will experience a parental divorce. And it can be all these background factors of families and characteristics of children and all the characteristics of mothers and fathers and the match between them and all these things that we think will have some impact on, on whether we expect people to experience a parental divorce. And so we create this model and then we have this this summary score of what's your propensity or likelihood of experiencing this event. 
And then we look at the variation according to that likelihood. So, so that's a different focus than scholars who've looked at differences by parental income or race or other kind of socioeconomic factors or other sociodemographic factors. So this has kind of a different flair to it in terms of thinking about the, the consequences and the variation and effects according to this likelihood of actually experiencing these types of events. And Jenny, that's one of the things I love about the research and the study. And I want to ask you about the model and some of the predictors that you reference. In the article, you note that mothers raised in large families with fathers present are less likely to divorce. So what impact do, do you think having a patriarchal figure has on how women handle and maintain relationships? And what did the research suggest about this area? There's a range of different factors that kind of go into this type of model. Some of them behave in directions that some behave in directions we would expect, some in in some other kind of interesting directions. In this case, it it may be that that some people are more likely to stay in marriages, potentially even have some conflict because of conditions, how they were raised in their childhood or certain ideas about how to stick through marriages that that potentially could even be conflictual. So we we see some of those patterns. There's there's a lot in this model. So it it's also each of those effects are controlling for all these other things that go into the model. So it's it's hard to make a lot of sure. <laughs> of what exactly we're seeing there. But what what did the research suggest in terms of women who were raised by single mothers in terms of their predisposition? To divorce. Women who were raised by single mothers were more likely to divorce. Generally, the more disadvantaged families are the ones who have a higher likelihood of divorce. And those are the, the men and women who had backgrounds that where they experienced more instability themselves. So, so generally, uh, those, those women who grew up with more low-income families, single parents themselves, they have this higher likelihood of experiencing disruption themselves. Jenny, when you look at disruptive life events, I'm curious because you reference families who, where there's children who have experienced those disruptive life events. And then if a divorce happens, how they transition and how they experience compared to children who may not have experienced disruptive life events before. When you look at a disruptive life event, is it a single event? How do you look at it in terms of an isolated event versus the pattern of behavior or a series of disruptive life events? This is really key. So what we're trying to do is isolate the, the causal effect of this particular event of experiencing a parental divorce. And, and we look you know, throughout childhood. So and it, it, it may be that children's educational attainment, and, and this is true, it is, that it's, their overall educational attainment level is lower for those, those children whose parents had a higher likelihood of experiencing parental divorce. And that's because these are the more disadvantaged families. And that may result because of all these different types of events that occur during childhood, other job loss, some other kinds of income shocks or other income volatility, other things that are happening during childhood. But when we're trying to isolate the effect of this particular event of a parental divorce, that, that means that all the things that led up to that, we're trying to adjust for that, all those other factors, all these 
income shocks or even family conflict and strife that's happening leading up to the divorce. So we're trying to equalize that and then look at what's what's the impact of the parental divorce and how how is that that particular event affecting children's education. And so so that's why it can be that these children of parents who have a high likelihood of divorce have are less likely to complete high school and are more likely to less likely to do to go to college or complete college. But it's not because of the parental divorce. It's because of all these other circumstances during the course of their childhood. Whereas for the people who have a low likelihood of divorce, the parental divorce is really the trigger. And that's what's causing some decline in, in particular in their college attainment levels. I guess in some ways it depends on the age of the child. When you reference long-term college, when you reference or even think about high school, when you look at a child and when their parents may be divorcing, I would think that sometimes the true impact of a parental divorce and conflict and educational attainment, sometimes you can look at it in the short term, but, but how a child experiences it in the long term, that may take years to follow. We didn't ultimately look at the, the time-varying effects. So in one version of this, we had actually separated it out at least to early childhood, middle childhood, adolescence, when, when they're actually experiencing the event and how close it is to the educational decisions that they're making. And it was, it was actually that the, when parental divorce occurred in adolescence, where we see a particularly large effect, because I think that's really disrupting the income of the families. And when they're deciding whether or not uh, that they can afford for to send the child to college, that that can be really consequential. So there's particularly large effects, if I recall, during adolescence, but we'd ended up not separating this out in, in this paper by the age-varying age effects because there's a lot going on in terms of all these sources of variation. In another paper, we also looked at some of the mechanisms linking, and that was originally in this paper as well, but I again, can't include everything in the single paper, but we looked at the, the, the post-divorce parental income, other family instability that occurred subsequent to divorce, and then kids' psychosocial, their psychological well-being following the divorce. And that that's where it was really interesting too. So for the, the kids whose parents had a low likelihood of divorce, the reason we saw the large effect on their, their, their college attendance and completion levels was because of the decline in parental income, the increase in some family instability, so more transitions that occurred after that, and some decline in kids' psychological well-being. So all of those things kind of factored into their lower likelihood of educational attainment. But for the kids who had a high likelihood of parental divorce, where we don't see these effects, it was because of these offsetting influences. So there were declines in family income, but there were increases in psychological well-being. So it seems like that there's potentially some conflict in the family that's leading to the higher likelihood of divorce and then leading to the actual divorce between the parents that ultimately ends up being some, maybe some relief for some of these kids, but not enough to offset the fact that there are these increases in family instability and decreases in parental income. And so then we just see a net zero of any right. effect on divorce, of, on education. And Jenny, you mentioned conflict. And one of the findings was that children of married parents with high level of conflict are no better off and in fact may fare worse at times than children of single parents. Why is that? 
That was kind of exactly with what we found with these mechanisms that potentially these families that have these high levels of conflict and lead to these high likelihood of experiencing a divorce, there's a lot leading up to the actual divorce. So there's maybe movement in and out of most likely the father from the household, a lot of perhaps a lot of fighting that's going on in front of a child and and that that could potentially be going on, at least from our model, that's that's what we're able to model that that's going on for years leading up to that that final divorce. And so in that case, we do see these increases in psychological well-being for the kids who were in this group of this high likelihood of divorce. So like I said, there, there's kind of these offsetting influences in terms of there might now that they're not two earners in the family that could have some negative impact for their educational chances, but we do see this increase in psychological well-being. So it it may be that either either they're they're doing better in, in some aspects of life and and not not worse in terms of at least their educational attainment. And look, we all hear divorce is obviously a tragic life event in, in many ways, but there's also many positives that come out of it, whether it's the relief, whether it's transition, whether it's children being part of a different family relationship, a different family dynamic. And you touch on one of those, which is the psychological impact and the psychological well-being when there is that disruptive life event such as divorce, do you see that psychological well-being and that improvement in the psychological aspects transition to other areas such as education and other facets of a child's development in life? I mean, we we see at least the increase in the psychological well-being. We're not seeing it fully translate to an increase in educational attainment, like I said, because of this kind of offsetting influence of the socioeconomic consequences of, of parents separating. So, of course, psychological well-being is in and of itself an important outcome. Sure. And so... That's that's one of the things that I think about as a positive to family splitting who who are suffering from a high level of conflict. And Jenny, let's transition from divorce to some other areas that you focus on. And you mentioned job displacement. Let's touch on COVID and the impact of the pandemic. I want to go back to a few of your past studies as well. You have an article, Job Displacement Among Single Mothers, Effects on Children, Outcomes in Young Adulthood. It's from several years ago. You note that there is large literature associating displacement with worker well-being, but there really at that time were few studies that focused on implication of children in single-parent households. Why was that, and really what inspired you to look into this line of research? I've long looked at the consequences of job displacement for workers themselves, and then I started a shift into thinking more globally about how this impacts families and and has intergenerational consequences. So I was actually surprised to see that there's not there wasn't a large literature of job displacement on and its impact on children that that has shifted over the last several years to a few a few more studies that look at this but of course it's 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 a big area a big important shock to families so and then the the work that had been done had mostly looked at the impact of fathers so fathers losing their jobs and how does that impact families and how does that impact the life course for children but of course there and then the the work that compared fathers and mothers was basically 
pointing to the fathers who lose their jobs or it's much more consequential than mothers who lose their jobs who might end having more time for their kids. And that can be a positive for their well, the family well-being. But of course, in the case of single mothers who are potentially single bread earners for the, the family, that mothers losing their jobs then can be a much larger shock to the family well-being. So I thought that that was an overlooked area and, and sidestepping the fact that when mothers lose jobs who are not in, in unions with fathers who might have income, that that's a much bigger shock to the family. So so that's that was kind of the motivation underlying that. And that was the, and, and then in that paper, we did a similar type of thing where we looked at the, how the impact varied across the likelihood of experience for single moms experiencing a job loss and across recessions versus expansions and, and looked at kids' psychological well-being and their education. As more marriages and relationships are ending in separation and divorce, and depending on the state and where you live, whether it's 45%, the divorce rates hovering around 50%, do you think more sociologists, there will be more of an emphasis on doing the research to study the effects of, parent, of single parenthood on children and their development? There's a large literature of the effects of single parents and and single moms and how that impacts children's life course. There was just less in terms of single moms and the impact of job loss. Some of that was because most job loss studies occur in economics and there's a large literature in sociology about single moms, but much of the literature on job loss was occurring in economics. So taking a sociological perspective to the impact of job loss kind of expands a lot of the outcomes we think are relevant and consider. So so that's how I shifted that or brought that perspective to bear on the impact of job loss, particularly for this population and for this set of outcomes. But But I think moving forward, we continue to think about how the complexity of family structure is shaping children's lives and how socioeconomic conditions factor into that. And Jenny, from 2015, you had an article and a study, the far-reaching impact of job loss and unemployment, and you have incredible findings in that research as well. One of your findings was that context of widespread unemployment associated with larger economic losses lessen the social psychological impact of job loss. As we look at the pandemic, have you found that to be true? during the past 18 months, 20 months, with millions of people being laid off from their jobs? Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to look at it in this particular period yet, but that would be, from, from what we know from the literature leading up to the pandemic, what we found is that the, there, there's these, these different ways that unemployment affects socioeconomic and psychological well-being. So in the in a context in which a lot of workers are losing their jobs, of course it's much harder to find a new job because there's a lot of people sure. unemployed and it's, it's it's much harder to to make that match and to have comparable wages subsequent to your reemployment. So that's that's the economic consequences. Tend we know tend to be worse when there's a, a recession or a period of large job losses. But the psychological impact takes a different form. And that's because when there are more workers who are experiencing unemployment, there's more of a shared experience. There's less, less self-blame, less of the idea that I, I'm at fault for my job loss, especially during this period, during the pandemic. It's very clear why layoffs were occurring and 
why workers are experiencing this. So they're less likely to internalize it as something that's the matter with them and more likely to see it as something that you know, is happening because of external conditions and able to share the experience with friends or family or just realize that this is part of a broader issue. So there can be actually these worse economic consequences in the face of, of better psychological well-being. So it's an interesting way in which job loss shapes the, the how the consequences are shaped by the context in which it occurs. It's very interesting. And, and job loss is going to be only one of the many, many things that we look at and sociologists and researchers study and look at during the time period of the pandemic and the new normal and the new world that we're living in. You mentioned health in the beginning of the interview. You mentioned the, the disruptive life events. When you look at the sociological and psychological impact of the pandemic, what have you seen? What do you expect to see? And in many ways, will we know the true impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic, whether it's on children and education, on families? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we recently just wrote an opinion article about this in terms of the effects of, of job loss on health and how the, the, the kind of next wave of health problems from the pandemic can really be the, the product of all the economic turmoil that's happened during this period. So that we've seen that job loss has this large impact on worker health and that it can show up a decade later. And so what what we may expect, unfortunately, is that 10 years from now, we could we could be seeing the the ramifications of this pandemic in terms of what it did to workers' health because of the the socioeconomic impact. So all these job losses, all this job insecurity, all the transitions and disruption that occurred during this period, we may see this play out decade, two decades to come. And so I've even done work on job displacement and social involvement and volunteering. And we see the effects of, of a job loss 10, 20 years later, so that there's still lower levels of involvement. There's still worth worse physical health or conditions showing up that take a long time to manifest over the life course and that in in the face of all this widespread disruption that occurred in the last 18 months plus now we would expect that we'd we'd be seeing these these consequences for for many years to come yeah it's such a great point jenny and whether it's the impact that you're referring to in terms of job loss whether in my practice as a family law attorney i see the impact of the pandemic on relationships and the stress and family conflict and you talk about children and mental health and what you're seeing in terms of that area, in terms of high conflict families and children and the transition and how they're experiencing family conflict, especially at a time like this right now. I want to transition to education. And look, I grew up in a family of educators. Both my parents were teachers and in the, in the educational system. So your work in the educational arena fascinates me. What do you see as the impact of the educational system in terms of poorly funded inner city schools and that dynamic and the interplay between those two things. Yeah, particularly during the pandemic, of course, we've seen the many ways in which the pandemic is exasperating inequality. So that's that's been very, very true in terms of the experiencing the experiences of students across school unequal schools. So students who are attending schools in inner cities that are poorly funded, 
they were suffering much, just much more during the pandemic in terms of the disruption of their instruction and the consequences that that'll have for their future trajectories for educational attainment is both in terms of the kind of home conditions, internet access, all these things that exasperated remote learning, health conditions that were unequally distributed, the ability of teachers to interact with students and keep them engaged during during the remote period of learning. And then even as we transition back to in-person instruction, bigger gap of time where they have to catch up. And that's always occurring in the context of already a lot of, uh, a lot of situations that make it difficult for students to achieve in the way that we would hope they'd be able to do in schools. And we know from research and education that, that schools have some equalizing role so that Students do worse during the summer. Inequality spreads during the summer months more than it spreads during the school year. And so when we're in a situation of remote learning, of course, we're going to see that kind of dynamic taking place where inequality is exasperating. And because we did this for such a long period, that this is kind of unprecedented in terms of keeping students out of school for such a long period and the, the degree to which that exasperate inequality is is alarming. Yeah. And Jenny, as both a professor and a sociologist, what have you learned from your students, from the research that come from disadvantaged backgrounds and upbringings? A lot of my research on education has focused specifically on how disadvantaged students who ultimately do make the transition and are able to attend and complete college have the largest benefits to doing so. So that's That's work that I've been doing for um, more than 15 years, just looking at, again, thinking about the likelihood of, of, in this case, going to college and that these low likelihood college goers who tend to be those who have lower family income, more likely to be racial and ethnic minority students, often in, in families of single parents, that those students who, you know, against the odds are able to attend and complete college have a really large gain to doing so. And so the the goal is really to get more of those those kids in the doors, support them so that they're able to complete degrees. And then we see these these benefits that extend across socioeconomic dimensions, family, family formation processes occur differently for college graduates from who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, civic participation, volunteering, less reliance on social assistance, all of these gains, both to the individual and family and society. Is there any concern with the younger generation who looks at it and, and sees opportunities to gain substantial income, whether it's blogging, being a social influencer, doing so many other things where they may not necessarily have to attend or complete high school or college? I can see a, a lot of people thinking that for their their job, they might need, not need a higher degree. The data show quite otherwise, so that we're seeing that high school educated workers are much more disadvantaged in the labor market than we've ever seen, and that the returns to college have only continued to increase. And so that workers who are 
or not attend college and getting a four-year degree are increasingly disadvantaged in the labor market. So despite the fact that some people, some people make it, there's always these examples of, of people who are able to, the tech stars who drop out and sure. <laughs> make their <laughs> careers or the influencers that are able to make it work. But by and large, we're seeing that the returns to a four-year degree are, are, are very high and as high as we've we've ever seen and that and that there's just more to increased education than than jobs and wages so i try to argue we're finishing up a book right now we're talking about the the widespread benefits to our democracy to our civic society to how people lead their lives to their health and well-being all the all the ways that higher education ultimately influences people's life course and and, and us as a society and Jenny, you mentioned the book that you're working on. And I was going to ask you, what's next for you in terms of your research? And I feel like all the studies and the research that I read of yours, it piques my interest in so many other things. And I would imagine as a professor, as a sociologist, as a researcher, when you set out on a certain path, a certain course study, so much comes out of it. Things that may surprise you, things that you may not expect. What's next for you? What are you working on as we head into 2022? The first thing is that I have to finish the book. <laughs> that's been <laughs> dragging on for several years. Oh, um, congratulations. That is, that's absolutely exciting. Yeah, hopefully that will be done next year. And we're, we're actually, we're doing a volume on disruptive events that's in the works right now. So looking across all these types of dis, uh, different disruptions, which which should actually, well, it'll, it'll appear in 2020. So that's that's in the works for next year. And and I do a lot of methodological work on causal inference. And so a number of studies are in play there. I've moved into machine learning types of models. So I've been doing more methodological work as well. I would like to get back into job displacement too, especially given what's happened over the last since since 2020 and follow the consequences of the workers who've lost their jobs during this period. Jenny, I'm curious, COVID-19 and the pandemic, this this disruptive life event, are there any disruptive life events, even on a smaller scale, that you would expect to come out of the pandemic as we get on the other side of it? What would you expect in terms of the, the disruptive life events, but perhaps on a smaller scale, that would be interesting to see how everything unfolds? Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic impacts so so many facets of our lives that we can expect all sorts of disruptions to unfold i mean we're seeing this in so many ways unexpected ways and just supply chains and how that's impacting workers how the the shift to um more remote work can change residential patterns and so it feels like it's in some ways unlimited, <laughs> all the different ways we could um, start to address what, how this monumental shift in, in the, way, the way we let our lives will ultimately impact the, the next years to come. So I feel like there's, there's, there are a lot of possibilities. <laughs> and there's an impact on all those areas, on the family dynamic and the relationships and marriages and the parent and the child relationship. Everything comes back to that in, in many ways in terms of, you mentioned the work-life balance, remote working, children yeah. were learning in a virtual world. There's a domino effect to how everything affects the family roles and responsibilities right. and the relationships and the family dynamics. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you said people being in close quarters and working alongside one another. Can you, maybe it'll increase cohesion. Maybe it'll cause more conflict. I've seen both. I mean, in my practice, I've seen both. I've had couples who were going through divorce and separation and people reconciled. I had somebody say to me, Evan, I now have a new appreciation for my husband. I never saw him before. He would wake up early. He would go to work. The kids were in school. All we knew is that things functioned and things got done. Now we're actually communicating. This forces us, sure, to be in close quarters, but now we're actually talking. I can see him interact with her children. I can see him in a light that I never saw before. And so I now have a new appreciation for him in a way that I didn't appreciate before because in many ways I didn't see it. So I think maybe we'll start to see some of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see variation in the impact of, of people being closer or working together or being more in the home and seeing one another. Jenny, this was fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Tell everybody where they can read about your research and studies and find out more information about all the wonderful and exciting things that you're doing. Yeah. I have a website, profjennybrand.com. That's great, Jenny. Thank you very much for coming on the Shannon podcast. Thank you. Wow. Absolutely incredible. Eye-opening. Thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Producer Dave, thank you as always. <laughs> Just happy to be part of the Shine On team, Evan, of course. Dave, you are the Shine On team. <laughs> Everybody can send in their emails and comments and whatever may be on your mind. Check out all the episodes and archive and blogs featuring our guests, shineondivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs>